This is part seven in a series that I've entitled Unmasked. We are making our way through the Ten Commandments. Today we're looking at the Sixth Commandment, which we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Four words. You shall not murder. That's it. Pretty basic, straightforward, simple, unambiguous. As I have said uh, throughout this series, we often assume that the Ten Commandments are a ladder that we climb in order to get more of God's love and to get more of God's blessings, that the better we are at keeping the Ten Commandments, the better God will be to us. That's what we assume. But as I've said each and every week, the Ten Commandments are not a ladder that we climb. They are an impassable wall that we crash into so that we will finally admit that we are desperate for God. The Ten Commandments are meant to expose, for instance, what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3 where he says, there is no one righteous, no not one. The Ten Commandments are meant to show us what Jesus told the rich young ruler, that there is no one good but God. That's what the Ten Commandments are on a mission to do. The Ten Commandments are on a mission to reveal to you and to me that we are weaker than we think we are. They are intended to show us that we are not righteous. They are intended to show us that we are not basically good people. That's what the Ten Commandments are intended to do. And as I said last week, If we insist on believing that we are good, that we are strong, real Christianity will have no appeal to us whatsoever. Because Christianity is for people who fail. Christianity is for people who are weak. Christianity is for people who blow it. Christianity is for selfish people. Christianity is for people who crash and burn. Christianity is for bad people. The good news is that God loves and uses bad and weak people who fail because there aren't any other kinds of people, okay? But the Ten Commandments are meant to expose that, to expose us to ourselves. The whole goal of the Ten Commandments is to expose the fact that we all need grace. That's the mission of the Ten Commandments. That's the goal. But... We may have a loophole this week, okay? I mean, we have finally arrived at the one commandment that most of us can say we haven't broken, okay? Um, We might find even a bit of relief with this commandment because while we may readily admit that we are guilty of the others that we've looked at already, we finally get to the one where we go, I'm innocent of that one. I haven't broken that one. Week after week, I have annoyed you by showing how each commandment demands far more from us than we might think, uh, exposing us far more thoroughly than we could imagine. But here, finally, a straightforward, no-nonsense command that we are sure we haven't broken. Okay, finally, good news. You know, when I I was thinking about this yesterday, whenever I was caught doing something bad as a kid, which was often, um, I would typically defend myself by yelling, well, at least I haven't killed anyone, you know? Um, We actually, 
use this commandment as a defense for our not-so-badness. Okay, We actually appeal to this commandment. When we are caught doing something, when we are caught lying, cheating, whatever, well, I haven't committed a crime. It's not like I killed anybody. We appeal to this particular commandment uh, as a way to defend our not-so-badness. This is the first commandment we typically think of when we're desperate to feel decent about ourselves. Okay, how ironic is that? This is the first commandment, the top commandment that we normally typically think of when we are desperate to feel decent about ourselves. I may be guilty of lying and cheating, but I'm no murderer. Um, So there is a sense in which this commandment might sound like good news to us because we don't think we're guilty of this one. We here at least are innocent in this place. But... As it turns out, this commandment might actually expose us more, not less, than all of the others. And all you have to do in order to see this is to flip with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as I have referenced uh, numerous times throughout this series is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is expounding on the Ten Commandments, the far-reaching demands of God's law, culminating in his famous phrase, you all must be perfect as God in heaven is perfect. At the end of the day, that's what God demands from you, perfection. And that line is intended to level us and to sober us up to the reality that we are imperfect and therefore cannot meet God's demands, which will force us to cry out for someone who can, namely Jesus. So in that sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, um, in Matthew 21, I mean, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, so um, Jesus shows that keeping this command extends to what goes on inside of us. Not only external actions, but internal feelings and motives and thoughts and so on and so forth. Human defense systems which all of us possess internally, live by the distinction between thought and deed. Let me explain what I mean by that, okay? Therapists are always telling patients that it's okay to have the thought so long as it doesn't lead to the act, okay? We, we live, we, we need this defense mechanism, this this thought deed, this distinction between thought and deed, this defense system, this defense mechanism. So wanting to kill someone is one thing, but actually killing someone is another matter. 
Now that is true in the eyes of the state, but not so before God. And Jesus makes that very clear right here. Um, if you want to kill someone, that is not the same thing as actually going out and doing it, according to the state. You can be angry and not go to prison. You kill someone, you go to prison. The horizontal consequences of those two things are very different. But before God, vertically, Jesus says, both are liable to judgment. Both are considered guilty. Um, Jesus insists that anger and murder are equally liable to judgment. He shows that in God's economy, there is an equality between intention and action, thought and deed. So this thought-deed distinction that we sort of live by is a clever defense mechanism which prevents us from seeing how bad we really are. That's what leads to statements like, well, at least I'm not a murderer. So I resent that person and I can't stand him or I can't stand her or I've been bitter toward that person and unforgiving for the last 20 years. But at least I didn't go out and kill him, which is what I wanted to do. Um, it, this is a clever defense mechanism which prevents us from seeing how bad we really are. This distinction, believe it or not, is the fuel for judgmentalism. All of us hate judgmentalism. We don't like being around judgmental people. Well, where does judgmentalism get its gas? From this thought-deed distinction. Because it, we could say it like this. I, I may have thought it, but he did it, and that makes me better than him. I may have thought it, but she did it. That makes me better than her. But if that wasn't bad enough... Jesus takes it up a notch. It's not just anger. It's any kind of insult, he says, spoken or unspoken. An unspoken insult is liable to judgment, according to Jesus. And notice what he does here. He takes intention out of it. So even unintentional insulting is breaking this commandment. <laughs> so it's not just... The uh, sort of murder, we all know that's bad. Anger, resentment, bitterness. Before God, same thing. But let's take it up a notch. Insulting. Unintentional insulting. So, I mean, how many of us have insulted someone without even intending to? Too bad, guilty. Okay. That's how far-reaching this command is. So rather than this being the one place we can go to and find solace in our supposed innocence, we come under the umbrella of this command and feel ourselves exposed even more. This is really digging to the depths of our heart and exposing things about us that are uncomfortable. He shows, Jesus shows that this commandment does not just forbid the external act of killing, it also forbids killing others in our thoughts, in our attitudes, and with our words. Henry Nouwen, who is an author, once said that nobody is shot with a bullet who is not first shot with a word. And nobody is shot with a word who is not first shot with a thought. And then he goes on to say that killing is not just a brute external act. 
It is, in its most common form, an internal issue of the heart. That's what Jesus is getting at here. We kill people all the time with the vicious judgments we make about them. All the time. He's so annoying. She thinks she's so much better than me. He always has to be the center of attention. She's so critical. He's so insecure. She's so concerned with looking pretty and being smart. All he cares about is getting ahead regardless of who he tramples along the way. She's so fake. We do this all the time. If we don't speak it, we think it. And then we become proud of the fact that all we did was think it and restrained ourselves from actually saying it. It's amazing. We make judgments like this all the time. We were, I was at a dinner on Thursday night, my friend Bruce's house. There were 10 of us sitting around the table and we were talking. It was a great night. I mean, we just, there was no agenda except to eat and talk and it was a lot of fun. Um, and at one point in the course of our meal, Bruce mentioned someone that we both know or someone that I know that he knew that I knew uh, and said, alluded to the fact that something may have happened in this person's life, okay? I hadn't heard from this person or seen this person in six years. The last time I heard from this person or saw this person, uh, I felt a massive knife in my back, Okay? I mean, this is a person who I thought was a friend and who absolutely betrayed me. And I have uh, been, he has been one of, this person has been one of the hardest people to forgive for me. And Bruce says this, okay, this is, now this is embarrassing to admit, okay? He says this, and I'm at a dinner, 10 people, okay? Having a good time, eating Mexican food, talking about this, that, the other. He mentions this, and I say, not just in my heart, because it's been there for a long time, with my mouth, with a smile on my face. I hope something terrible has happened to that guy. Okay? Now everyone laughed, and it was kind of funny. Like, I, I hope whatever's going on in his life is forcing him to lose everything. Okay? Now this is what's going on. Now I'm up here admitting this. You do the same thing. You may not say it out loud. You may not be as brash as me and actually say it. You may conceal your sin better than I do. But the fact of the matter is there are people in our lives, people who have hurt us, people who have done things to us that are, in some cases, unspeakable. And we justify our murderous rage toward that person or toward those people based on what they have done to us or failed to do for us. Um, what breaks this, I mean, I, I was sitting there, we were driving home after the dinner and I'm thinking, I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer's got nothing on me, man. <laughs> I mean, I'm literally, I'm, I'm getting ready to pr prepare this message and having to excavate my own heart because there's no way I can sell the idea that you're a murderer if I don't first buy the fact that I'm a murderer, okay? It has to sink in here first. And so I'm sitting there thinking about this on the way home from dinner, Friday, Saturday, as I was preparing. And I'm going, man, there is not a serial killer who has ever lived who, is, who has something on me. I may have not done it, 
everything that they've done. But man, I mean, I killed four people on the way to church this morning, okay? Bad drivers. I have murderous thoughts toward bad drivers, okay? I mean, if we really want to get down to brass tacks, the fact of the matter is this stuff exists in us much deeper than we realize. And we have to laugh because it's uncomfortable to admit it. Um, what breaks this commandment is not just the physical act of murder or even the physical acts of bullying or abuse or losing your temper. Harsh judgment, resentment, bitterness, words, they all kill. They are all instruments of death. One writer broke it down like this. In our envy of others, we kill their spontaneity. In our criticism of others, we kill their enthusiasm. In our refusal to affirm and encourage others, we help kill their capacity to love. With our suspicions, we kill trust. In our broken commitments, we kill relationships. In our infidelities, we kill the bond that makes for family. In our laziness, we kill creativity. In our abuse of food, alcohol, and drugs, we kill our own bodies. In our excesses, we kill enjoyment. In the harsh thoughts we have, we kill each other's capacity to be free and joyous. We are all perpetrators of death, all of us. And the proof of that is the fact that sadness, harshness, coldness, fear, suspicion, joylessness are all around us. This world and the people in it are constantly murdering one another. Constantly. So when we hear this commandment in its full-throated judgment, we cannot help but be left with only one conclusion. Murderers are not some tiny subset of the population to be kept safely tucked away in a maximum security prison. The sixth commandment breaks down the prison walls, not to let the murderers out, but to expand the prison. We are all murderers, if not by deed, then by thought, by word, all of us. But that's the bad news, okay? Come back next week and I will call all of you adulterers, okay? <laughs> fun, fun. Um, <laughs> but once again, what we are incapable of doing, God has done for us. As I've said, the demand maker became the demand keeper to save us demand breakers. So you just think about Jesus for a minute, okay? As Jesus hung on the cross, he was mocked. He saves others, why can't he save himself? Mocking him. It's one thing not to retaliate when you're outmanned and underpowered, but he could have obliterated the enemy with one word. He said as much to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter cut off Malchus's ear and Jesus puts Malchus's ear, the, one of the Roman guards' ear, back on. And he basically looked at Peter and he said, the war I'm about to 
wage uh, is won by dying, not killing, Peter. Because if it was done by killing, I could have summoned a multitude of angels to do this fight for me. I don't need you. So it's one thing not to retaliate when you're outmanned and underpowered, but he could have obliterated the enemy with one word. He had every opportunity to give into a murderous rage, and it would have been justified. God himself was being mocked. His murderous rage, his obliteration of the enemy would have been justified. Some would even say it would have been righteous. He had every opportunity. He was arrested, tortured, mocked for being innocent. Well, how did he respond? From the cross, bloody, beaten, naked, exposed fully. Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing. Where we succumb to murderous rages in our hearts and minds, Jesus asks the Father to forgive those who have unjustly ridiculed and beaten him. You don't keep this commandment. I don't keep this commandment. Jesus did. Um, he prays for his torturers. Prays for them. And he prays specifically, not that they would die, but prays that his father would forgive them. I mean, they are killing the second person of the Trinity. Fully God, fully man. And Jesus asks the Father to forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. He did this for us so that his record of perfect law-keeping, not just on the outside, but on the inside too, could be given to us. What theologians call the active obedience of Christ. They, they distinguish between Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience, all of which are for our benefit. The active obedience of Jesus is Jesus fulfilling all of God's perfect demands so that our relationship to God could be perfectly unconditional. The passive obedience of Christ is Jesus taking on him, he's passively taking on himself the judgment we deserve so that we will never have to experience God's judgment, ever. Well, Jesus fulfilling the law, Jesus doing everything required, meeting all of God's perfect conditions was for us. So that, as Samuel said earlier, when God relates to us, looks at us, he looks at us through the lens of Christ's finished work. He doesn't see all of our nasty withdrawals. He sees all of Jesus's perfect deposits and relates to us based on that. So every one of our murderous thoughts and desires are carried by Jesus to the cross, and every one of his petitions for forgiveness of his enemies is attributed to our lips. Jesus was murdered, in other words, to pardon murderers. Like you, like me. As the old hymn puts it, one of my favorite lines in any hymn that has ever been penned, by weakness and defeat, he won the victor's crown, trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. 
by weakness and defeat, he won the victor's crown, trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He died so that we could live. Um, I have a friend named Nadia who wrote this a number of months back. She says, there's a reason I'm obsessed with grace. There's a reason that I've spoken and written and preached about it more than any other thing, and here it is. Because everything else in this bankrupt world feels like it's about worthiness. It's about proving ourselves, knowing who we are better than. Everything else is about making judgments and hoarding wealth and being the best and optimization. Everything that is not rooted in grace that I have been offered in life, be it from social media or the wellness industry or higher education or religion or whatever, feels like it's all about just trying harder. But I've tried trying harder, and it doesn't make me free. It just makes me tired. So it is a blessing, a gift that the Ten Commandments are not a ladder that we climb. Because none of us could do it. It's a gift that it is a wall we crash into. So that as we move toward this wall that we think we're going to conquer, it smacks us in the face and we are leveled flat on our backs so that the only way out is up. And that's when we see God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus was cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I might have eternal life. My Savior wept so that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might, that I might gaze on unclouded brightness. He expired that I might forever live." An amazing prayer from an old Puritan prayer book called The Valley of Vision, where the substitutionary work of Jesus is put where it ought to be, front and center. That this whole thing is not about us and what we can do or even what we must do. This is about what Jesus has done. Because of what Jesus has done for killers like me, even murder cannot separate us from the love of God. That's good news. Let's pray together.